Indeed, the love of Jesus is deep. Deeper than we can measure, deeper than we can fully experience or be aware of. And yet we live in a society that is craving for love. Just consider how many songs, novels, poems, some form of literature, movies, or other elements in our society have the element of love or the search for love. Some have called love the arch emotion of humanity. Yet, friends, even this, this arch emotion of humanity has been corrupted by sin, by ourself-centeredness. And we think and have the impression that we can keep on showing love and do it well while still being gripped by sin and in bondage to sin. And yet it's not hard to see how often what goes on in the name of love proves to be a very temporary experience, like a, like a veneer just on the surface. Everyone desires love, craves for it, and yet the genuine love that we all crave for is oftentimes lacking so vastly. But when God saves sinners through the message of the gospel, our view of love and our experience of love is very different, vastly different. Our experience of love is different when we actually come to experience the saving power of God. That's why songs like the ones we have sung earlier in our service uh, tell us that there is a love that we can only experience and, and have a taste of when we come to be in this relationship with God, our Maker. Scripture tells us that God is love. And yet, because we have rebelled against our Maker, our experience and search of love has also been affected. Is there hope for sinners who continue to be craving for love, craving to experience love, and yet have rebelled against the very source of genuine, true love? Is there any hope for us? The passage we will look at this morning is, yes, there is hope. Because in the book of Romans, the book that we're working through as a church, we are finally getting to the place where, after ex exposing for us and exhibiting for us the gospel of, of God, as it has been introduced to us in Romans 1, we have seen what God has done to, to show us his love for us. And in light of that, Christians, those who have come to experience the love of God, have hope to experience and live out a very distinct kind of love. 
Would you open God's Word to Romans chapter 12? We'll be reading from verse 9 to verse 21 to the end of the chapter. The Apostle Paul is speaking to a congregation who has come to experience the love of God. And now they get to hear what is the implication of having experienced the love of God. Here is God's word for us. Romans 12, verse 9 and following. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you join me in praying? Asking God to bless the preaching of this word and the hearing of it. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, as we stand before this passage with so many instructions, short, specific, penetrating, convicting, Father, we confess that we need your spirit as we hear this word. I confess that I need your spirit to proclaim it, and we all need to, your spirit to hear it well. We pray that you would open our hearts, our minds, so that we may display and respond to one another with the same love that you have shown towards us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The passage we have just read has over 30 instructions, depending on how you count some of the verbs. Phrases with very practical and specific applications. And it may be, it may be tempting to say, I'm going to have a 30-plus point sermon. <laughs> Don't worry, we won't do that. But what do all these have in common? Most of them are instructions about how to relate to one another. And the 
the simple argument and the plea that the Apostle Paul is making through this long list of rapid applications, the, the main message he is trying to convince us of and to win us over is that the gospel transforms how we relate to one another. The gospel that he's been preaching and expounding for us for 11 chapters is transforming how we relate to one another. The distinguishing mark of this transformation of our relationships, the distinguishing mark is love. For those who have repented and trusted in Christ, for those who have come to experience personally the love of God for them, to recognize that this love of God, that God loved us first before we loved Him, for those who have come to taste the love of God in their own souls, for them, for those who have been born again, one of the first fruits and evidences that begins to be manifested in our lives is love. Because we have tasted the love of God, because we have seen how good it is, we now want to show it, live in it, and live it out. Oh, friends, a distinctly Christian love, not just any kind of love, a love that is flowing out of God, a love that is flowing back to God, and a love that is flowing back to His people and even towards our enemies. This is the love that God has shown us. This is the love that God imparts to our souls through His Holy Spirit, a love that comes from God a love that is being manifested back to God, towards His people, and even towards our enemies. That's the structure of this passage today. That's how these 30-plus applications are divided up. Each of the applications follow under one of these categories. A love that flows back to God, towards His people, and even towards our enemies. But before we look at, at these areas where this love is flowing towards, Paul actually brings up why the supreme mark of our gospel transformation is love. So actually the, uh, the sermon, the, the message this morning has four points, if you like taking notes. Four points that this passage is making. The first one is the principle of love, and then the last three are the this love is shown towards God, others, and even our enemies. Point number one, if you like to take notes, the supreme mark of our gospel transformation is love. We see this in verses 9 and 10. This love that Paul brings up has three characteristics. It's genuine, it's discerning, and it's affectionate. It's genuine, it's discerning, and it's affectionate. And we see this in verses 9 and 10. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. 
outdo one another in showing honor. Friends, it is possible that the call to love stands as a heading of this entire section. This, all these 30-plus practical applications stand under this major heading, love. And these 30-plus facets of applications are like, like a diamond that has many facets to it. And depending how you look at the diamond and under a different light, from a different perspective, you see new facets of this diamond. They are different facets, but it's all one diamond. And I think this is what this passage is. 30 plus facets of Christian love. When, what, when Paul commands Christians to love and to have, to exhibit love, he's commanding this love to have a particular nuance. The first nuance, the first characteristic of this love is to be genuine. Why this nuance? Why say, let love be genuine? Why not simply say, just love? Love one another. We see such commands in other parts of the Bible. But the command here is, let love be genuine. Why make that argument? Because it's easy to pretend that we love others. It is possible to act in a so-called loving way, and yet for this love to not be genuine, to be a mere pretense. The, the love word that Paul uses here, when he says, love, let love be genuine, the love that Paul brings, the word that, that Paul brings up is a word that in the Greek language simply says, anhypokritos. Now, I don't like to use Greek words very much, but this one I think you can get. Anhypokritos. Can you just try to imagine what is the English related word? Unhypocritical. Now, actually, in the ancient culture, the person who was an unhypocritos is not what you and I think of. In the ancient times, an unhypocritos was a person who played in, in ancient plays in particularly those plays that had lots of roles, but not enough actors to play in them. And the way they would manage the roles is the actors who played the different roles would actually wear a face mask. And an actor could play like 10 to 15 roles all in one play. All he had to do is just change a face mask, get on the stage, and say his lines. And get off the stage, put on a different mask, get back on, and he's now a different character. Well, the person who played in, the, in those kinds of plays were called hypocritos. And when Paul uses this language, a, a hypocritos, it was the person who would put on a mask. So when he says, let your love be un." Hypocritos. He's saying, 
Let your, ma your love be without masks. Don't just put a face of love. Don't just play the game. Don't just play your role in this play called Christianity. Let your love be without a mask. And from this picture, the translators have, have used a language of sincere or genuine. We might say today, without hypocrisy. Oh, friends, ask yourself, is your love a love without masks? Do you just put on a face when you walk through those entry doors as you come into this building? Or is there genuine love in your heart towards others? Simply putting on a nice, smiley face, but hiding your affections inside? And I'm not talking if you are distraught, hurt, discouraged, you're trying to put a composed look on your face. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about love. When there's inside you, there's no real love, but there's just a, a tendency to play nice. Because that's what Christians do, play nice. But no, Paul says, no, that's not what Christians do. Christians are called to have genuine love. This gospel-produced love is sincere. But it's not just sincere, it's also discerning. It discerns between good and evil. It even judges between good and evil. Did you see that in verse 9? It abhors what is evil. It hold, holds fast to what is good. In other words, genuine love is not naive. It's a love that clings to what is good hates what is evil. And the word for hate here is a strong word that speaks of, of strong emotions. Love is not the lack of judging between what is right and wrong. It actually discerns and it attaches oneself affectionately to what it discerns to be right or wrong. Negatively, it abhors what is evil. It wants to have no part in what is evil. But he wants to cling to what is good. This discernment between good and evil has been introduced in this book of Romans before. This is not the first time we get to learn about good and evil. As a matter of fact, it would be easy to just take this list and uh, simply think of good and evil in abstract ways. If we have been careful listeners of the book of Romans from the beginning of this book, we might remember that the first time Paul introduced a list of a contrast between good and evil was all the way back in chapter 1. As a matter of fact, this list of, of hating what is evil and holding fast to what is good, we should actually read it in light of what Paul said in chapter 1. Just listen with me to what Paul said in 
1, chapter 1, verse 28 to 32, where Paul gave another list. In chapter 1, he gave a list of 21 rapid practical manifestations of what a debased mind produces. What a mind that has been corrupted by false worship, a mind that has been corrupted by rejection of our maker, what a mind like that produces. Romans 1, 28 to 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. These are the fruits of a debased mind. This is what a mind corrupted by sin will produce in our horizontal relationships. But a mind that has been transformed and renewed by God's Spirit will begin to discern between what is evil and what is good. And will begin switching its affections instead of approving what is evil it will start hating what is evil and clinging fast to what is good. Genuine love is not naive. It realigns our affections to hate what needs to be hated and love what ought to be loved. In this way, gospel-fueled love is a discerning love. Paul already told us in verse 2 of chapter 12 that the renewal of our minds has a purpose of enabling us to discern, quote, what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So now, the gospel transformation that renews our hearts and our minds enable us to discern what is good. And this love is also affectionate. We've already seen that the, the words abhorring what is evil, hating what is, what is evil, it affects our affections. It's not just a, a logical, rational decision. But the affections also show up here in verse 9 and 10 in that it actually treats others differently. Look at verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Uh, this love that is genuine and discerning is also affectionate. And the affections that this love shows towards others treats others like family. The affections of this genuine and discerning love treats others like family. Now, we use a language today, he's 
to me like a brother. Or she's to me like a sister. That's how people talk when they have a very close relationship with someone who's a, a good friend, a really good friend. Paul says that's the kind of affection that Christians ought to have towards one another. Well, friends, if you think that Christianity is just a personal relationship with Jesus vertically and showing up to church on Sundays but keeps the rest of your life to yourself, let this challenge you and awaken you. The gospel that brings us a new birth, that transforms our minds and our hearts, is a gospel that transforms our affections in such a way that we begin treating strangers who are in the body of Christ like family. That's why we call each other's brothers and sisters. This is not just an old Victorian kind of Christian language that the Puritans used to use. No, this is biblical language because it flows out of this command that we would now treat one another, love one another with brotherly affections. Oh, friends, there is no genuine love where we treat one another by looking down on each other. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes even in family relations, we can fall into the trap of looking down on our siblings on our family members. In our home these days, that is one of the ongoing corrections that we have to remind all children not to treat each other by looking down on others or acting in ways that dismiss the other because they are siblings, they are brothers and sisters. And just because we are a family does not mean that we are somehow protected against the tendency to look down and mistreat even our family members. And this happens in church as well. Just because theoretically we tell each other we are brothers and sisters in Christ and we are supposed to live like a family does not mean that we always honor each other like family. Sometimes because we think the other is family, we feel like we can just be ourselves and keep our guards down and treat them poorly. Sometimes we treat those who are not family better than we treat our own family members. Have you noticed that? Why? Because we think, well, we're family. We don't need to act nicely with them. We put the, the nice guard, the nice mask off when we get home. But it shows actually what we truly are. We just put off this mask called niceness. But here, the Apostle Paul, when he talks about treating one another with brotherly affection, the very next thing he brings up is outdo one another in showing honor to each other. Because sometimes, even with our own family members, that's a part we, we sometimes let down very quickly, very easily. Oh, friends, can you imagine how our conflicts will look like, even in the home, if, if we showed each other the kind of love, the kind of brotherly affection, the kind of familial affection that outdoes honor. If the other person treats you in an inhonorable way or a dishonorable way and you feel like they're putting you down, 
It's so easy in that moment to return a favor and just respond to them in the same way. And Paul is saying, listen, here's a sweet spot. The, the bar has been brought really low. You can outdo the other by showing honor. Because when the other person treats you poorly, it does not take much, humanly speaking, to show a little better than that. At least a little better. Don't do the same. But in our flesh, this is very hard. To outdo one another when the other treats you poorly and in what you consider to be a dishonoring way. Paul says, this is the kind of love Christians ought to have towards each other. Genuine, discerning, affectionate, like familial. But don't take the familial stuff as if you can just so-called be yourself and treat each other poorly. This is a Christian love that we ought to have. And point number two and three and four from this point forward, Paul will show us towards whom are we supposed to have this kind of love, this kind of genuine, discerning, and affectionate love. And Paul's first point is towards God, then towards others, and then towards even our enemies. Genuine love, point number two, genuine love manifests towards God. We see this in verses 11 and 12. Our genuine love towards God manifests in, in earnestness for him. Paul shows us with a negative picture. Then he contrasts it with a positive picture in verse 11. Look at verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. The negative picture, do not be slothful in zeal, means don't be timid in being zealous for the Lord. Don't lack initiative in showing zeal for God. Don't just depend on others to rekindle that zeal in you. The positive picture is be fervent in spirit. The word for fervent is a word for stirring up our emotions. Be excited for the Lord. Be on fire for the Lord. The zeal that we are dealing with here has nothing to do with personality profiles. Some people are just what I may call social butterflies. They're always excited. There's just something about their personality. They're always upbeat, always positive. And you might say, well, I'm not that kind of person. No, you're not. God wired you different. Praise be to God that God wired you different. Can you imagine if every one of us was like that? We would be driving each other crazy. But just because some of us are more sober in our DNA, just more reserved, more calculated, we actually think things through. Just because God has made some of us more quiet does not mean that we get a pass in being fervent in spirit. It may show differently for you, but you don't get a pass. And don't confuse simply outward manifestations with that fire 
that's supposed to be inside you. With that eagerness, with that energy that you have for the Lord. Paul says, don't be slothful in zeal. Don't be timid. Don't be like a spiritual couch potato. Just waiting for others to initiate things when it comes to you and the Lord. Oh, friends, perhaps another picture might be here, boiling in spirit. It's a poor picture of the gospel for Christians to be in long seasons of slothfulness, to be bored Christians, to feel like they have nothing to do. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. It is a very poor picture for a Christian to be a bored Christian. Now, let me make a point here for those among us who are struggling with depression or are struggling with seasons of suffering or lament. In such seasons, it is very possible and easy for those who are in such seasons to look at the the, the Christians who are excited and bubbly and feel like, I am not like them. Something is wrong with me spiritually. And to feel like something is like a second-class experience in your Christian walk with God because you are not as bubbly and as excited and as, as enthusiastic as other Christians are. If you are in a season of struggling with suffering, with depression or other difficulties that just put you in a, in a season of life when you are lamenting, I just want to encourage you not to compare yourself with the people who are bubbly and enthusiastic and excited. Friends, in seasons like that of lament, of prolonged suffering and discouragement, we will see there's other manifestations that Christians are called to have, and those are in verse 13. So hang on until verse 13. Don't compare yourself to those who who are in a season of life Well, they are called to be encouraging, excited for the Lord. Paul challenges those who are not going through depression or or, or suffering or afflictions, and yet it feels like life is boring. Get off the couch, spiritually speaking, and begin serving the Lord. Begin asking the Lord to rekindle that fire, that spirit inside of you for the Lord. Because an unenthusiastic Christian, outside of those who are going through suffering and difficulties, an unenthusiastic Christian is a poor picture of the gospel. Ask the Lord to help you rekindle the flame of the gospel in your life. This fervency of spirit is the foundation for our serving the Lord. Most of the time, spiritual fervor doesn't show up necessarily on the emotional radar, although it should show up there as well, but it shows up on the service radar. How eager and open we are to serve the Lord and to serve the needs of those around us. It's so encouraging when I hear members 
just taking initiative on their own, not waiting for a, a, a church-wide call, but just taking initiative on their own to, to reach out to other members and serve them, checking in on them, taking meals to them, just seeing how they are doing in their, in their difficulties, in their suffering, reaching out to members who are not able to be with us because of illness, reaching out to our homebound members, to those who are sick or suffering. Friends, it's so encouraging as a pastor to watch you from the front row of how you do that. I just want to encourage you, keep doing that. It is so encouraging. If some people struggle with hitting a plateau, being bored, not not knowing what to do, others struggle with suffering and affliction. And to them, Paul says in verse 13, a different packet of applications. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Friends, our rejoicing in hope is not because of our present circumstances. Paul doesn't say rejoice in your circumstances. He says rejoice in hope. What hope? The hope that things will be better in the end. That end may not happen in the here and now, in the immediate. But that hope that God has promised that a day will come when he will make all wrong things right, when he will restore everything, when he will punish all evil, when he will wipe every tear from every eye. Oh, friends, that hope of glory will come. That's why we encourage one another with songs like the songs we have sung earlier in the service. But in the face of such tribulations, of, of suffering, of afflictions, there is, there is one reason we can still rejoice in. It's not circumstances, but it's hope. And when even that may be difficult, another response that we're called to have is be patient. Be patient in tribulation. Oh, friends, patience is one of the manifestations of fervency in spirit when faced with affliction. Patience may not be a very exciting thing. Patience is not actually a very bubbly thing. It doesn't feel enthusiastic. Most often, patience feels dull. Patience feels like you are on the losing side. But when faced with suffering, patience is how fervency of spirit manifests. So for those among us who are suffering, don't beat yourself that you are lacking the bubbly enthusiasm for the Lord. Are you patient in tribulation? It takes spiritual fervency to do that. Keep on being patient. Put one foot in front of the other. And then constancy in prayer. Our zeal for the Lord, our fervency in spirit shows up through our consistency in prayer. How's your prayer life? That would be a great barometer 
of the fervency that you have in your soul for the Lord. Getting excited about the Lord, yet not feeling very excited to spend time with the Lord. It's like an oxymoron. Being boiling on the inside for the Lord, and yet that doesn't show up in your desire to spend time with the Lord. Something's off. Our genuine love for the Lord shows up both in how we relate to the Lord, fighting off being timid or slothful, cultivating fervency in our spirit so we can serve the Lord and spend time with Him in prayer. And when facing trials, we rejoice in hope and we are patient in afflictions. This is how genuine love for the Lord manifests. But genuine love manifests not only towards the Lord, the love that God pours in our hearts manifests both towards Him, but also towards others. And this is what we have in point number three. Genuine love manifests towards other believers. We see this in verses 13 through 16. In verses 13 through 16, we see several facets of how genuine love manifests towards each other, towards other believers. Look at verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Now, remember the context that Paul has been preaching in in chapter 12, earlier before our text. In verses 3 to 8, Paul spoke about Christians being one body in Christ, members of one another. If we are so, if we are members of one another, if together we view ourselves as one body in Christ, then we are open to share our resources with each other. We give of ourselves and what we have to those who are in need. We do so in in various ways here in this congregation, including a benevolence collection that we, we bring up when we have the Lord's Supper. But we also just take time and opportunity to help those in need, whether it's with time or specific needs that they have as we become aware of their needs. But it's not just giving out our resources. It's also bringing others in. That's hospitality. We contribute to the needs of the saints, giving out. But we also show hospitality, which is the bringing in. It's a two-way street. And then we also are present with people, both in their joys and in their weeping. Oh, friends, one of, the, one of the things we want to encourage one another is to grow in this practice of hospitality and being present with people in their experiences. We have some folks in this congregation who do an amazing job at that. But there's others for whom this picture of showing hospitality is still a new thing. It's hard for you to feel like opening up your home or just opening up your life to to have others be brought into your life. Not just you going into their lives, but you bringing them into your life. But consider, when was the last time you have shown some level of hospitality? Ask yourself, when was the last time that another Christian walked through your threshold of your door inside your home? If that's a hard thing for you to do, ask the Lord to help you grow in this area. And here in this congregation, there's so many ways we can encourage each other in that. 
You don't have to do it alone. Ask somebody else to help you. Just show some hospitality. And then rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That means you have to be present in people's lives to know what they are rejoicing about or what they're weeping about. This verse is actually one of the vows of our membership covenant. We will rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, carrying each other's burdens. That is one of the membership commitments that we make here in this congregation. We identify ourselves with others in their experiences, but that means we got to take time to know what experiences they're going through. I remember a great lesson that Pastor Ryan shared with me uh, some time ago. I made a comment to him how I appreciate that he shows up to funerals. And he said that he's learned that lesson early on when he and his family were here um, attending Buff Rademacher's funeral. It was a while ago. And uh, the McGills had just joined the church recently at that time, or fairly recently. They did not know the Rademachers, but nevertheless decided to show up at the funeral service. And somebody made a, a very meaningful comment about how much it meant to them that this stranger family, no longer now, uh, but at that time they were new to our church, decided to show up to a funeral service of a member that they had not known. And Ryan said, after that, I just made a point. I'm going to show up to every funeral. That's a way of saying we want to weep with those who weep. We want to be present with them when they're going through difficulties. And you might say, but I don't know them. Um, that's not the point. The point is show up. Be with people in their joys and their challenges. We still have people who are dealing with a tripocalypse. There's needs that can be addressed in our congregation. If you just put on this posture, I want to love others. I want to make myself available. I want to open up my life to them to know about their needs. The Lord will show you how you can serve, how you can come alongside in joys and in challenges. We're not only called to be present with others and feel with them, but to live in harmony and peaceful relationships with them. Look at verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Oh, friends, in a church, you will have opportunities when others will step on your toes and will act in sinful ways against you. When others will act in, in ways that are not biblical or not wise, and you'll have an opportunity to practice uh, seeking to live at peace with others as far or as much as it be, it, it's dependent on you. We associate not only with the important people, but also with those who are lowly, who are humble. Now, we have heard multiple times in chapter 11 and 12 about the warning against pride, having a higher view of ourselves than we ought. But here, this call is given again after the charge to associate with the lowly. Don't have a higher view of yourself. And even when some, someone speaks or does things that are hurtful to you, it's very easy to put yourself up on a pedestal and to think you deserve better. I deserve to be treated differently than that. And reality is I often feel that way when some members act in hurtful ways. And I have to remind myself it's a battle. It's a 
It's a weekly battle. Uh, don't respond in the same way. Don't think that you're higher than others. Associate with the lowly. Oh, friends, if you have time for the people only that you find important for your time, but you don't have time to give attention to the people who are different than you, what does that say about your self-impression, about your self-view? Friend, the love that is genuine manifests itself towards others in distinct ways. It shares our resources. We bring others into our lives. It's, it's present with people in their joys and challenges. It seeks peace. It associates with the humble. Friends, what would you say about the fans of a sports team? And I'm thinking here in Austin, the, the newest team that has come on the horizon is Austin FC soccer. I know for some of you, you're still working on that. Um, but there's a, there's a growing fan group for Austin FC. And from what I hear, they're pretty wild and pretty crazy. But what would you say about a fan group, a, a, a group of, of fans who are very zealous for their team? And if, F, if FC soccer is not your thing, let's go Longhorns. I'm fine with that. But imagine if you're like, you, you, you say you're, you're really zealous for your team, but... When they win, you don't rejoice. When they lose, you don't care. You just go on with life. You don't bother to put on a jersey or to have any paraphernalia with their logo or colors. You just do your own thing. And yet you pretend to be a fan of that sports team. What does that say about what kind of fan you are if you don't rejoice when your team is winning, and you're not sad when your team is losing. When you don't identify, you don't check out the games, you don't check the scores, you don't see how things are going, what does that say about what kind of fan you are? But let me put it, let's take it up a, a, a step ahead, uh, above. What does it say if you pretend and actually claim that you are on a team, that you're actually a player, and yet, you don't care if you, you win. You don't care if you lose. You don't, you don't identify with a team. What kind of member of a team are you? And yet, somehow we think that when it comes to Christianity and the love that we're supposed to have for one another, that we can have this kind of superficial love that never engages us with each other in a way that our joys are the joys of our team. Their, their sorrows are our sorrows. Their jersey is our jersey. Their games are time when we're there as well, and we, we put on the good show of being good fans for the team. Friends, consider that God has called us to love one another in this way because it's one of the best proofs that his love has penetrated into our hearts when that love is being displayed towards those around us in these kinds of ways. Friends, if you are in Christ, you belong to a new body in Christ. His followers are now a team that are playing together and you are part of that team. They are one. So they play. They live life as one. Lastly, genuine love overcomes evil. Genuine love overcomes evil. In verses 17 through 21, 
we see how Paul calls us to overcome evil. This genuine love, again, is not naive. It discerns between good and evil. But friends, it doesn't stay at merely discerning between good and evil. And this is the beautiful part about this last section. It doesn't merely discern between good and evil. It overcomes evil with good. This is the amazing part about the love of God. It's not just a a barometer. It doesn't just tell you what's good and what's evil. It's a love that actually has overcome evil. And it's a love that when you exert it in your life, you are able to overcome evil in those circumstances that are around you when evil is around you. Let's see how Paul goes about making this claim. We're called, he says, we're called not to revenge against evil, but to do what? Well, first of all, not to respond to evil with evil. Instead, to respond with good, with what is honorable. Look at verse 17 and 18. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We are to do what is honorable even when our enemies or those whom we call brothers and sisters act as enemies towards us. Oh, friends, this passage is not only telling us how to treat non-Christians who persecute us. Verse 14 gives us a picture of how to treat those who persecute us. And hopefully they're not, they have not infiltrated the church. Although in certain places of the world, think through the, the church in Germany during Hitler's time, think the church uh, in communist times, even in countries like Romania, uh, persecutors have infiltrated the church. They are, those are weird situations. That's happening. But in most other cases, the persecutors would probably be outside the church. Uh, in such situations, indeed, we're called here to, to learn how to treat those who are outside the church. But there are times when someone is acting in a hurtful way towards us, and they are even in the church. Last week, we've heard the testimony of Gina. And the hurt that her and her family have experienced, even while being a part of the church. It's possible that even that some of our enemies might actually be members in the same church. That's a part of living in a fallen world. But how should we respond when others hurt us? Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And notice the word, never avenge. God forbids us to take avenge in our own hands. Ever. There's no place for it. Now, there are going to be occasions when God delegates punishing evil, um, and we'll see that in chapter 13. He delegates punishing evil to women to carry out, uh, to, to men, I mean to governments, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> women, men. I 
I've been at a camping retreat this weekend, did not sleep much. <laughs> there are times when God would delegate the authority to punish evil. And he, we're going to see that in chapter 13. He does that to governments. But he never gives that command to you and I individuals, individually. There are times when, when God will delegate the responsibility to judge between good and evil and execute that at the level of a church. We see that through the process of church discipline. But we're never called to do that individually on our own. God says, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Let God show his wrath against those who hurt us. Let God deal with those who hurt us. Friends, when others hurt us, it's so easy to play or to want to play God, to take things in our own hands. But God never allows us to do that. Instead of taking vengeance on those who hurt us, Paul instructs us to act with kindness and resources. Look at verse 20, uh, verse 20. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. This picture of heaping burning coals on, on the head is a very puzzling picture. It never shows up anywhere else in the Bible. And in Bible interpreters wonder, what does it mean? In other extra-biblical literature, uh, it has this picture of, of, ju- of divine judgment. That's possible. It's possible interpretation. It's also possible that this picture of heaping burning coals is a picture that will soften the hardness of the mind, the hardness of the evil. Responding back with good towards those who act towards you in an evil way melts, contributes to the melting of the debased mind who is set on acting in evil ways. Regardless of, of which way this, this, this image is working, the point is, respond with good. Respond with kindness when others hurt you personally. And the final point that Paul makes here in this section is in verse 21, and it's, it's sort of the, the conclusion of the whole thing. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Evil cannot overcome the Christian, said one author. Evil cannot overcome the Christian by doing us harm or even by killing us. Evil will only overcome us if, we, if it makes us use evil ourselves. That's the only way evil will really truly hurt us is if we are actually going to give in to its ploys and strategies Here's how one pastor put it. So how is evil to be overcome? The answer is simple and costly. Evil will not be overcome by church growth strategy, by Christian technology, by spiritual gifts, by preaching, or by testimony. Evil can be overcome only by good. And friends, a supreme example and the supreme good that we have been given is Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate manifestation of the good of God, of the goodness of God. 
few weeks ago, our brother Curtis preached from 1 Peter chapter 2. And in that text that he preached from, the Apostle Peter says this about Jesus to Christians who were on the receiving side of unjust treatment. Peter uses the example of Jesus as a motivation to help us not return evil with evil. And Peter says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He bore, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and to live righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Friends, Jesus did not return evil with evil. Instead, he entrusted himself to God, that God would would judge justly. If Jesus did not revenge while he was on earth and did not revile in return against those who have accused him falsely, you and I are called to follow in his steps. Jesus is the ultimate good. Because of him, you and I are are enabled by the Spirit of God to act in an honorable way, even when others treat us dishonorably. And through his example, we can learn how to put one step ahead of the other, not to treat others the same way they treat us. Friends, just consider, if God had treated us the way you naturally want to treat others when they hurt you, Where would you and I be for all eternity? Let that sink in. Because that is what God is calling us to do. God has overcome evil with good, with the person of Jesus Christ. So then now, God says to those who have been embraced and have, have been transformed by this gospel is, you Christians... You, my children, live this gospel transformation. Live this gospel-fueled transformation in your lives and show that gospel transformation in the way you treat others. The distinguishing mark of our transformation is love that is genuine, discerning, and affectionate. And it's to be shown towards God, towards one another, and even towards our enemies. Friends, have you thought that the life of the church, when exercised as God intends us to live out our our life together as a church, our horizontal relationships, is God's mechanism of extinguishing evil from the world? When you and I take what God said about this genuine love and actually overcome evil with good, We take the good that God has manifested to us at the cross and continue to show that in small bits, in crumbs, along the path that God has us in this this world. But these crumbs 
are genuine manifestations of the love of God. And people look at us and see, where is that kind of love coming from? And the only answer is, it's coming from the cross. It's coming from Calvary. Because that's where it was shown towards us. We have been given a feast of love. We have been given a feast of love. And now we are called to leave the crumbs of that feast around us, behind us. And it is only by such ways that we overcome evil. When we commit to live and love with this kind of love. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us your love. Supremely in the person and work of your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. He alone was good, supremely good. But Father, we thank you that through his goodness towards us, you call us and enable us to respond with the same quality of genuine love that you have shown us. Help us to do so for the glory of Christ. Help us to do so for the edification, for the building up of your people. Help us to do so for the extinguishing of evil. It is only through the power of Christ that this can happen. Help us, Lord, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.